are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Well, today we begin our final ascent on the final switchbacks that are taking us to the peak of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've done any hiking or any climbing before, you know that usually the trail starts out pretty easy. But as you make your way to the final ascent, to the peak of a mountain, it becomes a little bit more tough. It becomes a bit more difficult. And the same thing is happening here with Jesus' sermon on the mountainside. That while Jesus' sermon, it, it started out with tenderness, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It starts out with tenderness. It's ending with toughness. It starts out with a hospitable welcoming, that all are welcome, but it's now ending with a dire warning. It begins with grace. It now ends with a grit that is motivated by Christ-like trailblazing as he blazes the trail on the narrow and difficult road before us. He starts out with tenderness, but now he is ending with toughness. You see, what I want to make crystal clear today is that before Jesus ever invites us into this narrow gate or this tough road, he blazes the trail first. That before this sermon is ever about what we must do, it's first about what Jesus has done. Amen? That before we ever think about this is about works to earn our acceptance before God, it is first about how Jesus takes on our sin, our suffering, our shame, so that we can have life and life everlasting with God the Father. And so when we respond to this free gift of grace, this free gift of tenderness at the expense of Jesus' life, he invites us not into an easy, comfortable life, but he invites us into a difficult, hard, and narrow life. If our salvation, if our salvation was won through the suffering of the Son of God, then it seems to follow that our sanctification will come about through the same way, through hardships, trials. And Jesus is not trying to hide that there is another way for you to go. There is another option, he says. He's not trying to blind you to the reality that there's another way apart from him. There is a hard way if you follow him. And there is the broad way that seems easy. There is the way that leads to life. But there's also a way that leads to death. 
Many of you are familiar with our uh, modern poets. Two roads diverge in a yellow wood. But I can only take one. And here, two roads diverge in the world. And you can only take one. And Jesus wants to know which one will you take? Will you take the road that is less traveled by because it's hard and it's difficult? And that's the question I want to pose to myself and to you today. Will you, first point, take the way to find the kingdom of God? That's our first point. Take the way to find the kingdom of God. Or will you take the other option? To take the ways to follow the kingdoms of this world. Those two roads diverge in this world. Which one will you take? If you get your Bibles open, we want to dive into this first point. The way to find the kingdom of God. You all ready to dive in? First point. The way to find the kingdom of God. Enter by the narrow gate, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13. Now, a gate in the ancient Near Eastern culture in Jerusalem was the way by which a citizen would enter into their city. Most cities and most kingdoms were surrounded by large walls. If you're familiar with your Bibles, you know this from um, the, the, the story of, of Jericho. There's a wall surrounding that kingdom. You also know this if you're familiar with the story of Nehemiah, where he went to go rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. And there's two ways you can get into a kingdom. You can either scale the wall and go over it. You can send a marching band in to topple down the walls. Or you can just walk through the front gate. See, a gate was there to protect the city from enemies. The gate was there to protect from intruders from foreign nations. But also the gate was there to allow fellow citizens to come in and out of the city. And Jesus says both in verse 13 and 14 that this gate is narrow. Look with me in verse 14 now. He says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Simply put, Jesus is using some symbolic metaphors here. The gate is symbolic for the exclusive entrance into the kingdom of God. It is the only way in. It is narrow. And the road, the hard road, is symbolic for the ethic of the kingdom of God. The gate is the entrance. Can you say entrance? The road is the ethic. Can you say ethic? And it's hard. It's difficult. What Jesus is doing, he's contrasting two ways of living. He's going to do it next week when we look at the two different types of trees. He'll do it again in the weeks to follow when we look at the two different types of houses. When he's contrasting the hard road and the easy road, the narrow gate and the wide gate, he's saying the one that is hard, difficult, and uncomfortable is actually the one that leads to life. And the way that is swung wide open, the way that is easy, actually leads to destruction. Now, 
has Jesus suddenly shifted from wholehearted discipleship to now fiery preacher behaviorisms? Has he now shifted to hellfire and brimstone? It's doubtful. I think what Jesus is showing us here is that external appearances don't always turn out the way that you currently find them. That what you see now will not be true of it later. What you experience now will not be your experience later. Do you see that? Who who do you think he's directing his attention towards right now? To look one way on the outside, but as time moves on, you're going to be shown for what you're worth, what's going on on the inside. He's talking to the religious elites. He's talking to the Pharisees, saying you look fine on the outside, but on the inside you're dead. You know how to do the whole performative religiosity. And Jesus is saying, that's easy. Behavior modification is simple. We can get little kids to look good in front of people. That's easy. It's, it's similar to like getting a gym membership but never going to the gym. It looks good. You go to Athleta. Is that how you pronounce it? Athleta? Lululemon? Get all those workout clothes. Get some cross trainers. Post an Instagram selfie with hashtag whole 30, 40, 60, whatever it is. It looks great. It looks like you're really committed to a wholehearted life where you want to transform your body. The easy part is looking like you're committed to health. The easy part is behavior modification in this life. The easy life is looking like you're religious on the outside with having your heart match up on the inside. The Apostle Paul would say this type of performative religion is like rubbish. It's like bedazzled human waste. Glittery, shiny, somewhat gaudy and beautiful, but at the end of the day, it's still human waste. It's still rubbish. Looks good on the outside. Reeks of death and waste on the inside. This is doing all of the right things for the wrong reasons which the Pharisees were experts at. They were doing it for the promotion of self to look good. They were doing it for the praise of self. And Jesus says that type of external righteousness without internal transformation will get you nowhere near to the gate of the kingdom of heaven. He says this in Matthew 5.20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easy to change your behavior. It's difficult to transform your own heart. Do you want to know what's hard? Do you know what's narrow, what the difficult road is? It's doing the right things for the right reasons. This is what it means to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. 
Jesus has gone up to his crew on the side of the hillside. He says, you've heard that it was said by your religious leaders. Do not murder. Has anyone murdered someone in here before? No, because that's the easy thing. It's the non-difficult road. Do you know what's hard? Not getting angry with somebody. That's the narrow gate. Do you know what's easy? Putting on a smile and playing peacekeeper and peace faker. Saying, God, would you forgive me? It's easy to perform. It's difficult. Internally being a peacemaker and internally forgiving others who have sinned against you seven times, 77 times. That's an internal righteousness. It's a difficult road. You know what's easy? Seemingly easily? Not committing actual adultery on your spouse. What's incredibly difficult? Not looking at another person or a woman with lustful intent. That's an internal righteousness. See, it's easy. The easy road is performative religion. Behavior modification. The difficult road is internal transformation. Many of you, like me, you look at a text like this and you're like, who? Who lives up to this type of standard? Because this is the type of standard that a holy, righteous, and perfect God who created you and knows you and made you from so much more than you're living for right now, this is what he requires. And the only way to enter through these city gates is not through behavior modification, but heart transformation. You see, the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, the whole Bible, is not good advice to help you behave in a good way. That's not the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is good news. It's good news because we cannot obey good enough. We cannot save ourselves. You cannot measure up on your own. The good news of the Bible is for those who say, I can't measure up. The good news of the Bible is for those who say that I have failed. The good news of the Bible who say, are those who say, that I cannot live up to this standard of righteousness that requires not just my outward obedience, but inward obedience. Do you know what Jesus calls those who admits that they don't measure up? You know what Jesus calls those who says that only Christ can do for me what I cannot do for myself? You know what he calls you? doesn't call you a fool. doesn't call you a wash-up. He calls you blessed. Blessed. Look what he says at the beginning of the sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is what? Say it with me. The kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek. That just means powerless. That we don't have the power to save ourselves or to make us right or to change ourselves before God. For they shall inherit the earth. Why are we blessed? Is because we have not bought into the lie that our performance is what achieves us righteousness before God. 
We have not bought into the lie that we have to work to earn our salvation. That's why we are blessed. You see, Jesus here, he wants you to see that religion says, I obey, therefore I belong. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says, I belong, I get in, because Jesus obeyed. And now I want to follow him, even if it is difficult. Amen? So I was reminded a couple weeks ago by one of my friends that when we put our faith in Christ Jesus, I used to say this all the time back in the early days of Renaissance, but somehow I've forgotten it. That when you put your faith in Christ Jesus, what is true of Jesus is true of you. That you are loved in the same way that the Father loves Jesus. That you belong in the same way that Jesus belongs in the Trinity. You are whole. You are righteous. You are brand new. And through faith in Christ Jesus, it's not just what's true of Jesus is true of you. It's what belongs to Jesus belongs to you. You know what belongs to Jesus? Suffering now in this life. Hardships now. And glory later. You know what belongs to you if you're in Christ? Trials, hardships, suffering now. Life later. The hard way leads to life. Now this is where some of you might start to object. Some of you are trying to figure out this whole Christianity thing. Or maybe some of your neighbors that you talk to about Jesus object to this exclusive entrance that is the gate. They say things like, why does Christianity have to be so narrow-minded? Why does it have to be so exclusive? I just wish it was more inclusive of a religion. And and I I just want to know, I wonder at that question, what religion is just as inclusive or more inclusive than Christianity? Which ones? Now, I'm not terribly smart. I'm not terribly studied, but what I've noticed about all other world religions is that if you want to be included in their tribe, you must work to prove you belong. You want good karma? You better do good. When you want to meet Allah in Islam, your good bucket better outweigh the bad bucket, and also you better be sure that he's in a good mood that day. And when you look at the Hindu caste system, what do you have to do to get out of slavery and marginalization is you have to keep working and prove yourself to be better than your family that you're born into. All the world religions that you might say is more inclusive actually exclude people because of who they are and what they fail to do. What most people are looking for is actually found in Christ, where he does the work because he knows we can't. Where he does the good work, because even our good work, the work that's underneath our work, what's it for? To make us look good, not for his praise. To promote ourself and our brand, not Christ's brand of grace. But Jesus says, all who believe in me and the work I do, 
I will welcome them just as they are. Just as you are. It doesn't matter what you did last night or last week or last summer. He welcomes you just as you are, and he promises not to leave you where you are. That's where he says in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. Listen to me, no one comes to the Father. Not a single person can come to the Father except through me, he says. And he says, all are welcomed. All men are welcome. All women are welcome. All nations, all ages are welcome. It doesn't matter your past or your history or your story. I welcome you just as you are, and I promise to never leave you where you are. This is the way to find the kingdom of God. The gate is the entrance. The hard road is the ethic. It's hard because we have to do something really hard that's for Westerners and Americans. We have to admit that we're not good. It's hard because we have to admit that we can't measure up. It's hard because we have to admit that we have nothing left to prove. Because Jesus is the one who proved it for us. That is the difficult road. But there's also a second way. And this way, second point, are actually ways to find the kingdoms of this world. Jesus says in the latter half of verse 13, he says, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. You see, if the first example is protecting the folks on the hillside from behavior modification, Jesus is now warning against easy believism. Do you know what easy believism is? Easy believism says that if I have grace, then I can do whatever I want. That if I'm saved from hell, then I can live like hell. And the Apostle Paul actually punches back at this this ill logic. He says this in Romans chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you you see what Jesus and Paul is saying here? That the abundance of grace that you have, that flows deeper than all of your sin, your shame, and idolatry, shouldn't lead to the illogical response that if I sin all the more, then I'll even experience grace all the more. No, he says, send that illogic back to hell where it came from. When he says, by no means, he's saying, hell no. That is not how we live. Why would you want to be enslaved to the same sin so that you can somehow work for more grace? Do you see how this is another way of works to earn grace? You're working to sin more so that you can earn more grace? See, both religion and irreligion are two sides of the same coin. While religion says, I'm accepted because of what I do, irreligion says, I'm accepted because of what I refuse to do. Both 
are forms of works righteousness. Both are a form of works based on the salvation of me, myself, and I. What I do. Religion says I'll impose all these restrictions on everybody. Irreligion says there are zero restrictions. Y'all remember that movie that came out from Disney that all the little girls were singing that song to a while ago? What's that movie called? Y'all know it. Help me out. Frozen. Right? There's that line that Queen Elsa sings. No rights. No wrongs. No rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. I can't hold it back anymore. Y'all know, you want to sing it right now. <laughs> that is the philosophy of today. There's no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. This is how we define freedom, by no restrictions. But I, I just want to play that out for a little bit. I mean, just think about that logic for a second. Imagine how that would play out if you had zero rules, no right, no wrong on your diet. How would that work out for you? Imagine you had no rules, no right, no wrong on your sleep regimen. How would that go? Imagine with me for a second. If there's no right, no wrong, no rules at the Fort Pitt Bridge or tunnel right down over there. Can you imagine what that would be like with no restrictions? Cars going in the wrong direction, accidents all over the place. You think the pit tunnel is hard to get through right now? You think the slow down before everybody gets there is annoying now? You'd be at a standstill or worse, your own destruction. You see, most of us want freedom to do what we want, when we want, how we want, to whomever we want. But I wonder, have you ever thought what happens when everyone decides to live that way? What happens when what you want collides with what somebody else wants? What happens to the kingdom below, below Queen Elsa's ice castle in the mountains when she did whatever we, she wanted? She let it go. And not only harmed all of her family and friends into eternal winter, but created isolation for herself. Your freedom, no rules, no right, no wrong, always hurts others and always leads to self-destruction, Jesus says. See, what you come to find out with that type of mentality is that you can't just coexist. You can't. I mean, how do you figure out who's right when somebody bumps into another? Is it the person with more power? Is it someone with a greater status, with more wealth? You see, what no restrictions actually means is no restrictions for you, for me, 
but some for you, so you don't invade onto my freedoms. What no restriction means is I get the freedom at the expense of hurting you, canceling you, and rejecting you. And what you come to find out is that everyone is exclusive. Everyone is narrow. Everyone is. The wide way, the wide gate, the easy, comfortable practices, they only work in theory, but not actually when you have to live and love one another. The wide gate seems open, but it's only open to those who look like you, act like you, talk like you, and live like you. It's not inclusive. It's exclusive. The way seems easy that actually leads to destruction because no restrictions, whether it's in a diet, on the road, actually enslaves you, destroys you. And many of you right now who call yourselves Christians are looking at the world around you and saying to yourself, oh, that looks so liberating. It looks so freeing to not follow the ways of Jesus. And might I just say to you that you're not alone in thinking this. This is not a new thought that has entered into human history. The psalmist sings this in Psalm 73. He says, for I was envious of the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's saying, when I saw all the goods, when I saw the wealth, when I saw what seemed to be liberating to all of the evil and the wicked people around it, I wanted it. I was envious of it. And isn't that the same for us? I mean, don't you fear? Maybe it's just me. Let me just talk about me for a moment. Are you like me where I just fear that I'm missing out sometimes? Do you ever fear that when you follow Jesus, that God is actually holding out life from you? Do you ever fear that God doesn't actually have your best interests in mind? With this narrow way, this hard way? See, what we fear is born out of the same lie that Adam and Eve believed. That if we listen to God, we will not be happy. That if we follow Jesus, we'll not have life, but misery. But the psalmist in Psalm 73, he wants to sing to you this sweet melody, asking you the same question that he asked himself. He said, am I so stupid to follow the ways of God? Am I so foolish? And he says, but then. But then I came into the presence of God. And I saw the whole picture. That what the wicked have is only temporary and it doesn't last. What they put their hope in doesn't last last for eternity. Therefore, their hope doesn't last and their life doesn't last. Their treasures will fade. They will be eaten up by moths, will be destroyed by rust, and will be taken by thieves. 
And when their treasures fade, so will their life. And this is what King Jesus is warning us about. This way that seems wide and liberating and freeing will actually lead to your destruction. And his warning is grace. When he warns you right now, when he's warning me right now, he's being gracious to you because we don't even deserve a warning. He's warning you. And so he's saying there's two paths that diverge in the world. Which one are you going to take? Because many are going to take the easy road and they're going to be destroyed. Destruction? I thought God was loving. How can a loving God destroy things? Well, recently, many of us have seen injustices come out on uh, the, the media feed. number of injustices that have co- come out. Whether it's in the church or outside the church. And many of your cries have been cries for justice. Many of your cries have been born out of anger for what has happened to people that you love. Many of your cries have been born out of wrath that is motivated to right a wrong, to punish the wrongdoer. You know why that's the case? It's because you are created in the image and likeness of God. It's the same way with God. When God sees something that he loves being ruined, the only right response is to get good and angry. The only right response is to pour out and cry out for justice. This is a loving response. We, friends, we have been created to live in the presence of God. And instead, we have been living in the presence of self. In our self-interest, our self-promotion, and that rebellion, which the Bible calls it, only leads to your destruction. And yes, God is upset about it. You see, hell, destruction, isn't just eternal fire. It is. But it's also the trajectory of your life right now. Of many who live self-absorbed and self-centered lives where you do what you want, whenever you want, regardless of how it affects others. And Jesus is saying, that will go on for eternity. That type of destruction, self-destruction, and other destruction will last forever. It's your own self-made trajectory. But what is God's response to those who created, who are being destroyed by them own, their own self? What is God's response to those who have tried to create an identity apart from him? What's God's response to those who have tried to live their own way apart from him, to find satisfaction apart from him? It's this. It's to reveal his loving anger and to reveal his loving wrath, not on us, but on Jesus. He's able to destroy the sin within us without destroying us. 
I've heard this said multiple ways and many times before, that like in the same way that God loves us, is the same way when we see the things that we loved being ruined by things, what do you do? What do you do when you see something you love being ruined? You get good and angry. Becky Pippert, in her book, Hope Has Reason, says this. She says, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions and relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. See, God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. You see, Jesus is not indifferent to your destruction. Jesus hates your self-destruction. He hates it so much. It's so much that he has come to this world to be destroyed for you so that you wouldn't have to be destroyed. That your selfish desires to live for you, to live as if the world orbits around your dreams and your happiness. He knows that it's destroying you and it's destroying all of your relationships. And I know that many of you feel this in your life. It's not just what I'm saying is true but you feel it here. Walking into destruction. That where you are trying to find life right now, whatever is true of it will be true of you. If you're trying to find life in riches or relationships, in power, or pleasure, or status, and security. What's true of it will be true of you. And what's true of all those things? They don't last. And if your life is bound up with things that don't last, what is true of it will be true of you. You won't last. Jesus loves you enough to tell you this. And so God in his loving wrath gets angry at what is oppressing and enslaving your soul right now. And he doesn't say shape up or ship out. He doesn't say fix yourself so you can look faithful before me. No, he says, seek me and you'll find me. Knock on my gates. And it'll be open to you. You see, how do we find this life that only the few will find so that we're not led off into destruction? What does Jesus mean when he says only the few will find this way of life? I actually think he's being quite generous with that statement. Because when we look at all of human history and we look at the story of the Bible, there is no one, not no one, who lives up to this standard except 
one. And his name is Jesus. I say it many times, and I want this to get into your souls, that before this sermon is ever about what we do, this Sermon on the Mount is first about what Jesus has done for us in our place. That he lived the life that we could not live, and he died the death that we deserve to die, so that we can be made right with God. You see, Jesus Christ, he says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. And you know what the good shepherd does? Leads them in to the gates of the city. And he's not just the good shepherd. He is the lamb of God who laid down his life for the sins of the world. And he says these words in John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the, say it with me, gate for the sheep. What did gates do? They protected the citizens of the kingdom. Jesus' death, he is protecting you from the ultimate enemy. You. Your fleshly desires that want to enslave you to the things that promise you life that only lead to destruction. He is protecting you from the final enemy, which is death. And he took that weight on himself when he died on the cross for your shame, for your idolatrous ways, so that you can have life when you trusted him. Because the good shepherd just doesn't lead his sheep into the city gates. He lays down his life for the sheep so that he might die and that you might live. You see, two roads diverge in a path for Jesus. And he took the difficult one that led to his destruction so that you can have life. And how do we know that we will have life in Christ? It's because when he raised from the dead three days later, it's him declaring, I have victory not only over your life, but over all the world. And if he is alive and not dead, and he is, that means that when you put your hope and your trust and your faith in who Jesus is, you will not be destroyed because Christ cannot be destroyed anymore. You will live because Christ will live. And these gates are flung wide open to all who will come. It doesn't matter your past, your story, what you did yesterday. We did this past week. He says, I welcome you, not because of who you are or what you do, but because of who I am and what I've done. And when you see what Christ has done for you, you know what it starts to do? Transform you from the inside. Transform you from the inside that you had no way of measuring up to God, but Jesus measured up for you. Amen? This is not good advice to get you to live good. This is good news because we cannot live a good life on our own. This is the entrance into the kingdom of God. And he gives us an ethic now. Straight and narrow road where we see that he puts the right restrictions on our life. Not no restrictions, right restrictions so we can have life and life abundantly. And what's true of Jesus is true of us. What belongs to Jesus belongs to us. Yes, will we have life later? Will we have glory later? Yes. But right now, suffering. Suffering for Christ as we await for that glory that surpasses all of our suffering. 
These two roads are before you. And the invitation is to come to Christ. Come to the one who traveled on the road less traveled in your place so that you would not be destroyed, but have life. 